0: Hey guys, before the episode, just wanted to tell you about a bounty system that Bobby and I were thinking about. Basically, uh, we've had listeners reach out to us, uh, mentioning that certain uh, questions or answers are not entirely correct, and uh, we adjust them accordingly, and we're not perfect, and we'll make mistakes, Bobby more so than myself, but regardless, (laughs) regardless, if you do find something, if you come across something, you're listening, and you're like, hey, you know what, I actually think it's this, or I actually uh, don't agree with the answer reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. Hit us up on Instagram, hit us up. Uh, We have an email and a website, both of which are accessible and let us know. And uh, the people that have reached out in the past have done so very respectfully and we figured out and we edit the podcast accordingly. And we often send uh, the person that reached out to us uh, a little gift uh, from our buzzword store, typically a poster. So uh, that's what we're calling our bounty system. So go out there, find mistakes that we made, let us know and we'll send you something. Anything else to add, Bobby? I'll drink to that. (laughs) I'll drink to that. All right, guys. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Buzzwords, everyone. As always, I'm here with Bobby. Yeah. And it is a new year. This is our first episode of 2021. I found a poem that I wanted to share with you, Bobby, uh, just representing our time together on this podcast. Are you ready?
1: Sure. Let me hear
0: it. You don't need a boat to sail through the ocean of this life. With a good friend, you would float. That's a good one. Thanks.
1: A rising tide raises all ships.
0: Oh, I really like that.
1: Thanks. I didn't make it myself.
0: No, I know. Hardly. Maybe one day we'll make. Uh, we'll uh, present poems that we actually make ourselves. Mine would yeah. likely be a haiku.
1: Our uh, <laughs> listenership just tanks immediately. <laughs> We, I know you guys are here for the baby shoes, don't
0: you worry. <laughs> and with all uh, things New Year's, we also have a new intro song. So without further ado, let's get started. I'll drink to that.
1: The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink. going to bring us two absolute martinis. You know how I like them straight up. Why is the rum always gone? It's sort of an oaky afterbirth.
0: What did for enjoying his whiskey? What was that? Now that's high you... Cheers.
1: <sighs> Buzzwords.
0: Alright Bobby, what are you drinking today?
1: Oh crap, I spilled all over my screen. When I opened it, I didn't spill, but when I opened it up, it, like, exploded. Today, Bo, I am drinking Creepshow, which is a smoked porter by a Warped Wing Brewing Company.
0: Well, that sounds awesome. What is a, a definition of a porter, just for my under-education?
1: So, I'm going to be honest, I don't actually know. This one is a smoked porter, too. And it definitely tastes smoky, but I don't know what an unsmoked version of a porter would taste like.
0: All right, so a porter is a person employed to carry luggage.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense.
0: And a, dark, a porter a drink is a dark brown bitter beer brewed. <laughs> There's a lot of alliteration Say there. Say that five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dark brown bitter beer brewed from malt, partly charred or browned by drying at a high temperature. Interesting.
1: What are you drinking?
0: I'm drinking the St. Archer and that might sound familiar because I've had two other St. Archer brews, but the St. Archer Tropical IPA. I've had their Mexican lager in the past. Um, I've also had another one, but this one is the Tropical IPA, uh, an ale brewed with mango and passion fruit. So I'm super excited. It's actually based in San Diego, so uh, home brew.
1: Very cool, you have to drink with passion fruit.
0: All right guys, so today's episode is focusing on electrolytes and acid-base, two notoriously difficult subjects, conceptually sometimes difficult to wrap your head around. Hopefully we can shine some light and at least present you the high yields for your STEP exams because really for STEP, it's not like the wars where you need to know all the intricacies. You really need to know just big guns, you know, broad spectrum, generalized concepts, uh, more so than the intricacies. Would you agree with that, Bobby?
1: Yeah, just to clarify, you did say big spectrum and or broad spectrum and big guns. This is not an ID podcast, so...
0: Yes, so you need to narrow your focus from those big guns.
1: (laughs) You need prior authorization from an ID doctor. You need an ID consult (laughs) (laughs) for For these fluids. All right, guys,
0: we don't want to confuse you anymore. And by the way, guys, I was listening to some old podcasts, and I think it was Infectious Disease Pneumonia, uh, where I dislocated my toe and that was kind of one of the hot topics on that episode just wanted to give you guys a 2021 update uh since that episode the whole
1: foot's gone (laughs) uh
0: the toe is not gone basically i had we did that episode i went to the podiatrist the following day and we found out that the toe wasn't dislocated, but actually the toe was broken. It broke the capsule so that the distal part of the phalange actually was looked dislocated, but it was only because my capsule had ruptured. So since then, I've uh, basically just done nothing on the foot. It's now 2021. It's over three months later and uh, still can do very little. So still struggling, but uh, improving every day. Just want to give you guys an update. I know you guys were worried about me. Oh, wait, the capsule,
1: like the joint capsule?
0: Yeah, oh. that's what broke. Like, so you just break so a bad.
1: bone, it's like the...
0: Well, no, the bone, the proximal part of my distal phalange ripped off, and that was the part that was attached to the oh. joint capsule.
1: So you had like an yep. avulsion fracture?
0: Exactly, yep.
1: Damn.
0: Yeah, so it wasn't like, he's like, yeah, this is going to take a long time to heal. Yeah. Anyways, I'm sure the people listening would like us to get started rather than five minutes of a... Uh... Or we could just chit-chat.
1: I mean, I've never broken any bones, so... For our podcast listeners at home, we know who's uh, stronger. So you have a young guy come in, and he's just there for a routine checkup. And you notice as you're checking his blood pressure that when you inflate the cuff, his arm kind of like pulls in and like spasms a little bit. What's going on?
0: So this guy is presenting with the Trousseau sign.
1: Yeah, exactly. And what is Trousseau sign
0: indicative of? Hypocalcemia.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Perfect. So when someone's hypocalcemic, what do we do for them?
1: Give them calcium.
0: Perfect. Are there any causes that come to mind immediately of why someone would be hypocalcemic? For example, there's a specific surgery that can often lead to hypocalcemia due to extraction of an endocrine gland.
1: Oh, a parathyroidectomy?
0: Right. Or a thyroidectomy where they just get the parathyroids.
1: Yeah. I guess that's actually more common than than you would think. It happens in like, what, 10 or 15% of cases?
0: Right, so that's a that's a big reason people can come in hypocalcemic. Vitamin D deficiency also uh, is a trending subject right now, uh, but that can also lead to hypocalcemia. Um, and then the final thing I was thinking about at least was renal failure, where you can get that hypocalcemia secondary to that as well. Right. If someone's hypocalcemic, Bobby, what happens to their QTC? It prolongs perfect fantastic and yeah like bobby said if someone's hypocalcemic you give them calcium on the wards you'll give them something like calcium gluconate
1: yep that's a good one um and what if somebody's
0: qtc keeps prolonging what are they at risk for prolonged qtc classic is torsades yep exactly we'll give them some mag call it a day
1: sounds good to me i'll drink to that And um, what's the other kind of textbook physical exam sign that you'll get asked about for somebody who's hypocalcemic?
0: So hypocalcemia has two. It has the Trousseau sign, and then the other one, so that's the French guy, right? And then there's a Russian guy. Is it Chesnov? Mm -hmm. It's the the tapping of the uh, cheek. Yeah,
1: so I think it's called the chopstick sign. But yeah, you're exactly right. You tap their cheek, and it'll, they'll twitch like involuntarily. And obviously, most people will twitch if you tap their cheek, but they won't be able to suppress it if they're hypocalcemic.
0: Right. All right. So I'm gonna jump on board your uh, calcium train and ask you a couple interesting questions, okay? Choo choo. So let's say someone comes in, and they have a really high calcium. It's 14, for example, but their parathyroid hormone is low. What does that make you think of?
1: So if they have a low PTH, but their calcium is high, that would concern me about um, something like sarcoidosis or like another granulomatous disease uh, that's causing excess vitamin D and therefore excess calcium retention. And then the PTH is getting driven down as a result.
0: Exactly. There's some exogenous source of calcium. So in this case, you think about malignancy, granulomatous disease. We mentioned this, I think, in another podcast, but Mm -hmm. uh, recently had a patient with lymphoma that uh, kind of presented like this PTH, independent hypercalcemia. So let me spin it. So let's say you have someone now with really high parathyroid hormone, but their blood calcium is low, let's say 7 or 8. What does that have you think about?
1: So That would make me worry about uh, kidney failure, like secondary or tertiary hyperparathyroidism.
0: Exactly, exactly. So in the setting of CKD, chronic kidney disease, you can get really high parathyroid hormone, but that's a response to the really low calcium. And the really low calcium is multifactorial, and I'm sure it's much more complex than what I'm about to say. But I remember it as the kidney's inability to excrete phosphate, and you'll see that in the wards, all your kidney failure patients, their phosphate will be six, seven, eight, and the nephrologist won't even bat an eye because they're like, yep, they're a kidney failure patient, they're gonna get that dialyzed off, no problem. But their phosphate goes really high, and we know when phosphate goes high, um, calcium can become very, very low. So that's kind of what you wanna remember. High calcium, low PTH, think of an exogenous source. High PTH, low calcium, think of kidney failure. Everything else is kind of self-explanatory. If you have high calcium and high PTH, it's probably a PTH problem. Anything yeah. else to add on that, Bobby?
1: I think the broad strokes were definitely covered, and I think that's probably what you need to know primarily for kind of triaging these uh, step two questions.
0: So, Bobby, regardless of why the person came in, and we've touched on this before, I just want to kind of cement it into people's mind. They're hypercalcemic. What is the first-line treatment for this patient?
1: Going to give them fluids. The solution for pollution is dilution.
0: Very nice. I'll drink to that. Cheers. That's a lot of high yields right there.
1: And this is oh. kind of a, a more of a low yield question, but if for some reason somebody's calcium and their phosphate were both really high, like say their product was above 56, what would you be worried about?
0: I've never heard of that. What?
1: So it's uh, calciphylaxis, I believe, and that's when you'll actually mm. start getting like deposition of calcium phosphate like uh, into tissues.
0: Yep. I've seen some patients with calcifylaxis. It's very very sad because there's not much you can do and it's apparently incredibly painful. Yeah.
1: Say you have a uh, an elderly patient come in. She's on the tea and toast diet and you just get some routine labs on her and her sodium is like super low. It's like
0: in the 120s. Are you worried? So of course, I'm worried about an elderly woman with a poor diet and low sodium.
1: So you're, you're not just going to show up and hit her with that 3% hypertonic saline?
0: If she seems with it, uh, I will not be doing that. So with these patients with hyponatremia, if they were as low as 120, I mean, I've had patients as low as 112, 113, in which case uh, we'll give them a little bit of hypertonic uh, saline. But uh, first line for hyponatremia, if they're not acutely, you know, encephalopathic, um, you can just actually water restrict them um, and see where they go, see how they move. If you don't know the underlying etiology, with this lady, it's probably poor PO intake. Um, but regardless, you want to water restrict. Uh, you want to. Uh, you can give them salt tabs if if it's not moving with the water restriction. But the key to hyponatremia treatment is slow and steady, uh, because you don't want to cause uh, issues four or five days. Uh, Down the line. So, my understanding is six to eight mil equivalents for every 24 hours. You want to increase the sodium. Again, if they are symptomatic, hypertonic uh, saline. If they're not symptomatic, uh, it's okay to go slowly, a free water restriction and with salt tablets. What am I missing?
1: No, exactly. You got it right on the point. The one thing I'll add is if they start seizing, that is like one of the kind of classic things where it's like, okay, then you would give hypertonic saline. Um, and do you know a condition that you're worried about giving them if you overcorrect too quickly?
0: Oh, sure. You're going to lock them in, uh, osmotic demyelination.
1: Exactly. Yep.
0: Yeah. It's very sad. It's something that I think is very scary for people, uh, scenario, and this is more important for your wards is, um, if someone comes in hyponatremic, uh, people will tend to do it because with this lady, for example, Uh, her kidneys work just fine. It's just a tea and toast diet. She's hyponatremic because she's not getting enough solute in, so you could actually give her solute and start improving uh, her hyponatremia quite quickly if you just give her, for example, a 500 milliliter bolus of normal saline. The problem arises is when someone comes to the ED, you assume it's just that, you give them some normal saline, and actually the etiology, whether it's in their chart or they're a psych patient or they have a lung cancer or whatever it may be, they have some reason to have syndrome of inappropriate ADH, they become hyponatremic for a different reason. They have too much ADH, they're retaining their fluid, uh, their free water. And now all of a sudden you give them normal saline and but normal saline is part water and part solute. And because they have syndrome of inappropriate ADH, they're gonna reabsorb that free water, but they're also gonna just pee out that solute. So all of a sudden you gave someone that's hyponatremic more water and you're gonna only make them worse. That's why you do not give normal saline in patients with syndrome of inappropriate ADH or SIADH. It's yep. a key, key thing. Yeah, Exactly.
1: And even in a less extreme, well, I guess this is kind of a less extreme circumstance, but you should be careful about giving too much fluid to like CHF or chronic kidney disease patients because CHF patients, you know, their renal angiotensin aldosterone system is ramped up. So they are going to kind of function the same way where you're going to fluid overload okay. them. And then same for the renal patients since if they're in kidney failure or they're you know end-stage renal disease, then their kidneys can't process all that fluid that you gave them anyway, and they're just going to be fluid overloaded.
0: Yeah, so let's break hyponatremia down real quick for the listener. So hyponatremia, you have to first assess the volume status. So there's there's key buzzwords for this. So when someone's hypervolemic, Bobby, what are the things you think about? And you just mentioned two of them essentially.
1: Yeah, so hypervolemia, you think about uh, chronic kidney disease and uh, like congestive heart failure, so
0: and one more, another reason that you get kind of fluid overloaded, different organ system.
1: Oh, like ascites, or like liver right, failure, like a cirrhotic picture, right? Um, and so in those patients, so it'll be kind of obvious if they have a lot of fluid on them. So you know, if they stand up, they'll have pitting edema, or if they are. You know, have a lot of fluid on their lungs, you'll be able to hear that too, is, you know, kind of crackles and stuff at the bases. Or you may even even see that on chest x ray. You can see, you know, pulmonary edema type stuff if it's progressing very quickly.
0: Exactly. So if someone comes in, especially on the step exam, you have a patient, they're in the vignette, they have signs of CHF, cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome, anything like that, and they're hyponatremic, it's going to be a hypervolemic hyponatremia. The answer choice that's correct is not giving them fluids. Uh, the answer choice that's correct is actually fixing whatever etiology uh, is causing it. So if they're in heart failure, diurese them. Um, if they're cirrhotic, fix that. So things like that. Um, then you go to euvolemic hyponatremia. And there's a couple. The key, key one is when we've already talked about, SIADH. That's kind of the buzzword, euvolemic hyponatremia. Those patients um, can have often, like, you can find hints in etiologies in the brain, and sometimes lung cancer. There are other reasons someone can be hyponatremic and uvolemic, two that are come to mind immediately. Bobby, any idea? Read my mind. So,
1: uh, uvolemic, hyponatremia, I would think uh, primary like, like psychogenic polydipsia, and then SIDH, as you had mentioned And then uh, like a glucocorticoid deficiency, be the one that I'd think about Mm -hmm. or uh, hypothyroidism.
0: Yep, perfect. So I I think the best way to remember euvolemic hyponatremia other than psychogenic polydipsia is just endocrine, 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 because it's steroids, thyroid, and SIADH, which is, you know, pituitary. So if you think about those three etiologies and just lump them together as euvolemic hyponatremia, you'll be doing all right. So we touched on hypervolemic hyponatremia and euvolemic hyponatremia. Now the final one, and one that we've already kind of gone to is hypovolemic hyponatremia. And this is the one that you'll often see in the hospital. Little ladies that come in that were found down uh, who haven't eaten for a while, poor PO intake, uh, diuretic excess, um, lots of vomiting, diarrhea, just classic things trauma so like this is one that you'll see a lot where someone just comes in and they're fluid down and because they're fluid down and they haven't taken solutes for a while they're going to be hyponatremic and these are the patients um that you want to actually start giving solute to
1: yeah exactly so something to kind of keep in mind it's kind of like a step one throwback i guess is your body will try and maintain a regular like salt and fluid balance but it will preferentially do whatever it can to maintain that fluid balance because obviously pressure is more important than if you have enough salt in your body. And so like you had mentioned like trauma and stuff, that's why you end up being hypovolemic and then hyponatremic at the same time.
0: Perfect. So we've covered hyponatremia a lot and I know it's difficult on a podcast just listening uh, without being able to look at a chart or anything like that. So uh, I implore people to look at a chart, but just to kind of review uh, one more time, if you're hypervolemic, think nephrotic, cirrhosis, and cardiac failure. If you're euvolemic, think endocrine and psychogenic. And if you're hypovolemic, which is what you're going to see most often in reality, it's probably due to poor intake or losses like vomiting and diarrhea.
1: Yeah, that's a good overview. And this, I know this is a frustrating topic to learn. It's one that I've always had a hard time learning, and like keeping straight in my head. And I feel like I have to look at that table every like six months or so and just remind myself, but it's something you get asked about a lot on the wards and it does show up on the shelves a fair bit. So, and it's important to know, you know, in your practice. So it's kind of one of those like sticky points. It's like hard to memorize, but it's definitely worth knowing.
0: Beer potomania can cause a hyponatremia too, right?
1: Yeah. I, I just, I kind of lump that one in with like the tea and toast diet.
0: I just say that as we get ready to drink.
1: All I've eaten today is tea, toast, and beer. I'm carb loading. Let's run a marathon.
0: All right, Bobby. I have one more question about sodium for you. So You have a patient that comes in. They've had a lot of urine output, and they're very thirsty. Their blood glucose is 96, and their A1C is 5.0. Their serum sodium is 152. Their serum osmolality, 316, with a urine osmolality of just 120. What is the underlying etiology? Diabetes insipidus. Fantastic. And just from that question, stem, can you tell if it's central or nephrogenic?
1: No, you have to do a uh, water restriction test, actually.
0: Perfect. And when you restrict the water, what's going to happen?
1: So it depends on where the... Uh the source of the diabetes insipidus is so, and there's kind of three things you're sussing out when you do it. So basically what you do is you have the patient come in and you monitor them and you don't let them drink any water. Can you just check their urine and serum uh, osmolality every couple hours or every hour? And if somebody has psychogenic polydipsia, so they, you know, are peeing a lot because they're drinking too much water and their sodium's low because they're drinking too much water. Then when you water restrict them, uh, it should just go back to normal. It'll raise up. And I think the cutoff is like a 50% concentration over six hours. That's that's not super important to keep in mind. Um, and then at that point, say that they haven't started concentrating after six hours, what you can do is you can give them intranasal desmopressin, DDAVP. And if it's central diabetes insipidus, then their uh, urine concentration will rise. And if it's not, if it doesn't rise, then that means that they actually have a resistance to desimpressin, which suggests that it's actually a nephrogenic diabetes insipidus.
0: Perfect. Exactly. So diabetes insipidus can be central, just ADH production versus nephrogenic, which is resistance to the ADH. So giving ADH if someone's resistant is not really going to help. Yeah. And if someone's hypernatremic, we also correct their sodium uh, just from simple measures. Uh, I had a patient recently who was hypernatremic into the 180s. And um, this is kind of above or beyond what you need to know for step two. But for the wards, you need to know kind of what uh, how much sodium is in every type of fluid. So like normal saline, for example, has 150 millimoles. So you could give normal saline to this lady. And because she's 180 and you're giving her the concentration of 154, it's uh, just normal saline will start dropping her sodium. But you could also give lactated ringer, which has 130 equivalents of sodium. You can give one half normal saline, which has 77 equivalents of sodium. Um, so basically, you want to do the same thing. You want to go slow. I guess it's less likely that anything's going to happen, apparently, according to a nephrologist. Based on one study that was done on kiddos, uh, cerebral edema is super uncommon. It's actually like so rare that it would be a case report, said one nephrologist to me. So... Uh, in theory, you don't have to go slow to correct hypernatremia. They don't think you do, but we still do it just to be careful. Um, so again, it would be like eight to 10 milliequivalents every 24 hours. Um, and you want to just give a type of fluid or water, uh, and just constantly check the sodium and see that it's going down, uh, appropriately.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I, I saw something the other day that basically one liter of normal saline is roughly equivalent to eight bags of potato chips in terms of the amount of salt that it has holy cow so that really puts things in perspective
0: very nice all right guys that is the end of part one of our two-part episode for electrolytes and acid base come back soon for part two where we will review the beers
1: and talk about other acid base stuff catch you on the flip side chap lips